0: Good morning everybody, I want to ask you to grab a Bible and open with me to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and as you turn, let me pray for us. Father in heaven, you are a good and gracious king, and we pray now that you would continue to transform us into a generous people, for the sake of our good and your glory, amen. What causes a group of poor people to give of themselves for the sake of others, even though they have hardly anything to give? (laughs) Generosity. What causes a person who is wealthy, who seemingly has it all, decide to give of themselves for the sake of others, even to the point of nearly becoming poor? Generosity. Over the last handful of weeks together, we've seen that becoming generous is one of the ways in which we grow as a follower of the Lord Jesus. And that giving becomes generosity. It moves from giving to generosity when we don't do, when we give up certain things for the sake of becoming generous. And generosity is not just typically a one-time act, it's a disposition, it's an outlook on life in which we say everything I have doesn't belong to me, it's all from God, it all belongs to God and therefore I hold it with an open hand. And as we've been talking about this together, we've recognized the struggle that this disposition doesn't come naturally to most of us. Most of us tend to think of our possessions, our time, our gifts, and our money as something that is there to service our agenda for life. We need something to move us toward generosity. An outlook, a a realization about God. You might even call it a conviction. And the conviction that we've been exploring together, the foundation we've been laying over the last three weeks is this, that God is the generous king. So generous is he that he expresses his generosity to you and to me in all kinds of ways, practically, materially, and spiritually, ways that he doesn't have to, but he does because he loves you. And the generous king produces generous people. That's the conviction behind generosity. And when you start to understand that conviction, that outlook in life, it spares you from falling into cynicism when it talks about having an open-handed life with your resources. It spares you from from the obligatory gift to the church or the annual sermon on tithing or whatever it might be. But when you think about God, the generous king, and how generous he has been to you, it changes the way that you look at your possessions. We see examples of that in life, and we see examples of that in the scripture. And today we turn to such an example. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, starting at verse 1. The Apostle Paul has been writing in 2 Corinthians to this church that is wrought with all kinds of problems, all kinds of growing pains. And here in the middle, he seemingly takes a left turn and goes in chapters 8 and 9 and addresses the topic of giving and generosity explicitly. And this is what he says. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected. But they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that he, that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, and knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out from what you have. For if if readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that a matter of fairness, your abundance at this present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need. And there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Paul begins this section of 2 Corinthians by giving... Two examples of generosity. The first example is seen in verses 1 through 5 among the Macedonians. He says in verse 2, look at it with me, he tells the Christians that those in Macedonia were extremely poor and in severe affliction, and yet they overflowed with a wealth of generosity. And when you read that, it's easy to gloss over, but when you stop and think about it for a moment, it causes you to ask a few questions. This is not normal human behavior. People who are very poor going over and above and giving the very little that they have for the sake of other people. So what is going on here that has created this dynamic in which They want to be extravagantly generous. Well, part of the answer is found in verse 1. Paul is describing the weekly collection in Macedonia. He's describing what we would call the offering. (laughs) What we did just a few moments ago. And he describes it as, in verse 1, the grace of God that has been given. This act of regular giving was not ritual, was not pro forma, it was not superficial in its nature. When they made a collection among the people, it was not simply obligatory, time to pass the plates. Nor was it payment for services rendered. The church is doing good things. I like the music, so let's give to the offering. It wasn't merely in response to a profound vision by the senior pastor. This giving is described or attributed to God's grace to them. It was a reflection of grace. The Christians in Macedonia said that their giving was because of God's grace to them. His overwhelming, undeserved favor upon them. They considered themselves to have God's grace even though they had almost nothing. They considered themselves to have God's grace even though they were in great affliction. And this caused them, it says, to overflow, or some of your translations might say, well up (laughs) with generosity. And I love that expression, to well up. We use that expression today almost exclusively in one situation, don't we? To well up with emotion. To well up with emotion is another way of saying emotion has overtaken you. You can't help but cry. (laughs) These Christians... Welled up in generosity. God had saved them from themselves. They didn't deserve it. His grace was abundant in their life, and they were acutely aware of it. So grateful were they for the grace of God. That they saw his provision as spiritual and material. Even though spiritually rich, materially meager. And yet they still lived in generosity. Paul didn't need to constrain them with an amount. He didn't need to set the goal or put the thermometer up in the church lobby. He simply... Talk to them about God. And they had an attitude, a disposition, you might even call it a conviction, that he was the generous, generous king among them. And in fact, it says in verse 4, they were so desperately wanting to be a part of what God was doing that, look at it with me, they begged for the opportunity to participate. Their giving, in this sense, was a visible sign of the invisible grace that God had given them. Their giving, their generosity, was a visible sign of the invisible grace that God had given them. And in a bizarre reality that we can't make sense of in the world's terms, we see that in, among these people that joy, because of what the Lord had done... Plus, severe affliction of their circumstances, plus poverty, equaled wealth. Joy, plus affliction, plus poverty, made these people really, really rich. Friends, only the gospel can do that. <laughs> and so the poor acted in generosity. Notice another component of what compelled them to do so. Look at verse 5 with me. Paul says this is not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. To give themselves first to the Lord is another way of very simply saying they surrendered themselves to God. They surrendered all of who they were to God in every area And this resulted then in generosity. Now the notion of surrendering ourselves to God is is tied tightly to the whole idea of recognizing Jesus as your Savior. That if God really is indeed the divine eternal being who saves us from our sins and has the best outlook of humanity, of eternity, of life right now, then when we surrender ourselves to him, we are saying, God, you are the king. You are the generous king. I I recognize your rule and your reign in my life, and I want your priorities to become my priorities. This is the recognition of David in Psalm 24, when he says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and all who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false. And does not swear deceitfully. That's another way to say... He who has surrendered, (laughs) he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Surrender is willfully giving all of you to God. Because of the grace that he has shown to you. It's an ongoing dynamic in the Christian life. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know the struggle of surrender. <laughs> the struggle of saying, God, I give this piece to you because our propensity is to regularly want to take those pieces back for ourselves, our relationships, our aspirations. And maybe even the most difficult of them all (laughs) are money. But if you surrender who you are, all of you, and if you surrender all that you have to God, then something amazing happens. You become a conduit of his grace. And so Paul uses that type of language, that type of theological relational language to talk about this act of giving, this action of generosity. Look with me, in just chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, these are all of the descriptors that Paul uses to talk about generosity and giving. He talks about it in terms of grace, of privilege, of partnership, of sharing, of service, of ministry, of earnestness, of love, of willingness generosity of abundance he talks about it as a liberal gift and refers to it as an undertaking the thrust that he's trying to help them understand is that invisible grace is made visible as we excel in generosity Invisible grace is made visible for all to see as God's people continue to grow in generosity. And that leads to the second example. The first example was those who were poor giving generously. The second example is the richest one of all showing generosity as he becomes poor. And that's what we see in verse 9 with Jesus. Look at it with me. Verse 9 says, for you know, there's that word again, the grace, (laughs) you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. The first example is that of the poor. The second example is the one of the most rich of them all, the Son of God himself. And of course, the verse is not referring to material wealth. It's referring to the fact that Jesus left the glories of heaven. The perfect place. The deity in its form. No imperfections around him. No encounter with sinful being in his presence. No physical pain. Perfect physical union with God the Father. He left the riches of heaven. For the poverty of earth. And he did so so that you might gain all of those riches of heaven. This is the sacrifice before the sacrifice. The incarnation of Jesus. Who left much. (laughs) That you would gain everything. That's the ultimate form of generosity. And so you see the poor giving much and the rich giving much in generosity. And Paul drives home the point in this chapter, verses 13 through 15, that there is a shared ownership among the people of God for spiritual and physical needs that when You have much, you give it in such a way that there's nothing left. And when you have little, you do not want because of this shared ownership in the gospel. In those two examples, Paul briefly addresses the work of Titus and and what's going on in the life of the church there in Corinth. But then he gives a specific encouragement. It's an encouragement to them and I think it's a good encouragement for us. It's encouragement to move beyond obligation in how you look at giving and your resources. To move beyond that into a dynamic in which you excel in the grace of giving. In which you excel in generosity. And we see that in verse 7. Look at it with me. Paul says, But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. He refers again to giving as an act of grace. And he calls you to excel. Just like you're excelling in everything. Excelling is rapid growth, isn't it? That's what it means to excel. And... He references a number of things that they have been excelling in. Faith and speech and knowledge and earnestness, love. No doubt a reference to the gifts that he's been talking about in First and Second Corinthians. Even more generally, he's talking about Christian growth. The plain old nature is that when you put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and come into a relationship with the eternal God of the universe, you grow. <laughs> I wonder how you've grown. If you're a Christian, you have. And sometimes it's really good and encouraging just to take a step back and take stock of the ways that you've grown over the last year. Over the last five years. Maybe the last 15 years or even more. How has God changed you? There's no doubt that he's changed you in your faith. That He's given you a more substantial trust in him that helps you to navigate the ins and outs of life. (laughs) I would imagine for many of us, for most of us, he's changed, he's grown you in your speech. (laughs) Probably some of us want to grow even more in our speech. (laughs) How about in your knowledge? Of course, God grows you in knowledge. Knowledge of who he is and how he works and that informs what you do and what you don't do in some ways. This is the great revelation of the scriptures to us. That we get to know God. Not just know about him but to know him intimately. And to understand his priorities and his works and his ways. And become aligned to him in those ways. And we see him more clearly and we understand the world around us more definitively. We grow. I love hearing about how people grow. I love it when a Christian says, Pastor, you have no idea what God has done in my life over the last three months. And I've grown in this way, and this way, and this way. And God has not done growing you yet. And we know, of course, that as we think about our own growth, that there's examples that we look up to. People, people even in this room, we say, I want to grow like that person. She has that thing that I don't have, that understanding, that grasp. He lives in this way or talks in this manner that I really aspire to be like. We have examples. And there's also the dynamic of intentionality, right? That if you're a Christian, you will grow. God will grow you. But there's a difference between sort of taking a passive backseat in life, saying, I'm going to let life happen to me and catch his catch can along the way, and you'll grow slowly over time. But when you're intentional... When you put yourself intentionally in front of God's word in the morning with that cup of coffee and you pray and you become part of a local fellowship of believers like this one to hear God's word and to enjoy the relationship of other Christians or when you're part of a growth group or a Sunday school class or when you serve and say, God, I want to step out and use the gifts that I have for the sake of you. Those are intentional vehicles for growth. And what happens then? You excel in those areas. I wonder if you've ever thought about intentionality, about growth in giving. We think about intentionality with regard to serving and Bible reading and all kinds of other areas of our Christian conduct. But do you think about it in terms of giving? Paul says, he encourages them, he encourages us, excel in this act of grace Also, and notice, he's not talking about tithing here. Many of you understand the concept of tithing. It's based in the Old Testament law. Tithing is the giving of 10% of your income back to God in worship. And in recognition that everything you have is his. And so you give it back. And in the Old Testament, actually, the followers of God, the Jews would give their tithe, their 10% back to God, and then they would give another form of offering and another form of a temple tax. And all in all, it was common for Old Testament Jews to give about 23%, 23 22-23% of their weekly income back to God in forms of worship. But Paul is not talking about the Old Testament law, and he's not talking about obligation. Because in the New Testament, the rhythm of Christian giving is described in terms of generosity. And we notice, verse 12, that it's in proportion to what you have, not what you don't have. And we see the example of generosity being Jesus himself in some way, which is actually not in proportion, incredibly disproportionate, because he has this incredible act of love and self-sacrifice, and yet the charge for us is to continue to excel in this grace of giving, to excel in generosity, to grow here. (laughs) Generosity is when you forego something else that you could do in order to be generous. And that's really hard. (laughs) That is, you might be thinking to yourself, Pastor, I don't even know how I would begin with that. That's pretty hard. Why is it so hard? What are the obstacles? Debt is a huge obstacle. The lifestyle we've become accustomed to is a huge obstacle. The expectations that we have for our future is a huge obstacle. And maybe it's just the fact that we want to take another vacation, (laughs) And that becomes actually an obstacle. Some of you are saying, I'm with you in theory. I want to grow in this area like I want to grow in the other areas of my Christian life. And I think that's probably the vast majority of us. But we might be saying, I just don't know how to get there. How do I move from where I'm at today to growing in this area of my life? Let me give you an example, a story of a family in our church, and then maybe some practical application. There's a a family in our church that uh, I've come to know and love. And over the past 10 years, uh, this family has been growing incredibly in their faith in the Lord. And they decided that they would increase their giving to God, their financial giving to God, by 1% a year. With however long that they could and however long they felt like God would allow them to do that. They desire to partner with God in his work. They see the grace of God applied to their life and they say, I want, we want to keep giving in this type of way. They're excelling in the grace of giving. And there's tremendous intentionality behind it. Fifteen years ago, uh, in response to the scripture, the husband decided that he needed to recalibrate his understanding of money. That up to that point in his life, he was not giving God his first and his best. (laughs) He was giving God whatever was left over and whatever he could scrape together by the end of the month. And he decided, okay, from this moment forward, I'm going first and best to God. And so he committed to start giving to the Lord 10% of their income. Modeled after the tithe, but not an obligation to the law, he would say. As time went on, as they continued to give in that way, uh, five years later, he read about the blessedness of possessing nothing by A.W. Tozer in his book, The Pursuit of God. And the idea is this, that of course you still own material things, but you possess nothing. You don't look at them and approach the things of your life in terms of possession That God is actually the one who possesses them, and you are the custodian of them for the time that you have them. And that allowed him, he would say, to walk through life with a different dynamic, quite open-handed, as he thought about his resources. And as he thought about those resources, he said, well, this this might be the time where God is allowing me to start excelling in the dynamic of generosity. In this grace of giving, as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So he started increasing their family's giving to the Lord by 1% a year. Manageable number in his mind and something to strive for. And the reason, he would say, is simply they wanted to give God their first and their best. And they wanted to, they recognized very plainly that they weren't going to get to heaven someday and have God say to them, Hey, you guys gave too much <laughs> to what I was doing For that very short time you were on earth. Now I know what you're probably thinking. You're probably thinking to yourself this family's rich. This family has all their kids out of the house. This family does not have the financial constraints that my family has. It's a family in their 40s, they're not wealthy. He's got a normal job, they got a bunch of kids. And they're so compelled by God's grace and they so long to do the Lord's work that this year was their 10th year, meaning that now they give 20% of their income back to God. Practically speaking, they know they're not able to do other things. They're not able to take that extant vacation. They're not able to drive maybe some of the cars they'd like to drive. But after all, generosity is when you give up some things for the sake of others. And they would recognize very quickly and attribute the success that they've had, the financial provision that they've had, the job raises that he's had over the last years. As yes, of course, working hard, but more so that God blesses them <laughs> and provides for them. And that he Blesses obedience. And so they continue to excel all the more. Now, let me be clear. Not all of us can do that right away. Some of us might never be able to do that. But what a great example of intentionality in growing in this way. And this gentleman would say going from zero to 20% is a huge jump. It's not even possible for most people. But you know what? Going from 19% to 20% isn't. (laughs) Or wherever you are, 0% to 1%, 5% to 6%, 10% to 11%. You have to start somewhere in consistency in this grace of giving. He would say, I think, along the lines of what Paul is saying here, that invisible grace is made visible as we excel in generosity. And i will thinking about the practical aspects of this, and that I, I think is a pretty remarkable story. And I think about the people that I've known over the years that have grown in generosity significantly. I think about my own um, struggle with surrender and holding on to things and taking things back, especially my money over the years. And I I think what happens in us is, is fairly common to the human experience when it comes to how we look at our resources and how we look at giving things to the Lord. And I would just call it the arrow of progression here, or the growth and generosity. And it looks something like this. This is just kind of a rough uh, graphic of what it could look like that we came up with this week. On the very far left end, on the left of the red arrow, is the idea. You say, yes, I want to respond to the scriptures. Yes, I think it's good to be generous and give to the Lord. I want to do that. And so you make a decision to do that, but you say, you know what? When you look at my finances, there's absolutely no way I could do that even if I wanted to. My personal finances are all tangled up in all kinds of things. In debt, in lifestyle, in a mortgage, in all kinds of things. I can't, even, I can't even be generous if I want to right now. And if that's you, and that's a lot of people in our culture today, I would say that there's really two first steps for you. Step number one is to start to become intentional about untangling that rat's nest of your finances. And we offer help with that through Financial Peace University and other mechanisms that have been really helpful to people over the years to move from financial slavery to financial freedom. And then number two, I'd say, if you're in that place, sometimes it helps you just to get off the blocks by just giving something. (laughs) Even if it's small in its nature. I think from there, many of us get to a place where our finances are relatively in order. And we, not perfect, but we say, I know I should be giving. I don't really feel like I want to. (laughs) That's called obligation. Some of us look at our tithe in the form of obligation. I can give the number. I'm not going to give more. I'm not going to give less. Some of us look at maybe even a bigger gift in forms of obligation. You can give a lot of money away and still feel obliged to do so without being driven by generosity. And so this is, in this obligation phase, you give somewhat consistently, it seems like. You look for excuses not to obey at times because uh, you don't feel it. You're not driven by a conviction necessarily. But then something happens. It seems like for a number of people, the more that they give, and even if they're giving out of obligation, they start to see what God does in them and through them. They start to feel what God is all about by way of conviction of this generous king. They see the results of people putting their faith in Jesus, of people growing in their likeness to Jesus, and then there's a switch that flips. And the switch that flips is now they move from feeling obligated to give to becoming excited to give, and they move from looking for excuses not to give to looking for opportunities to give. And this is a really exciting phase of growth. And I've seen that, I've heard that in many of you, when you're saying, God is doing something that is so much bigger than me. And what legacy can I have that's better than being part of an eternal work that far supersedes The insignificant things that I would buy in the temporary. And so they orient their life and start to grow in generosity. And then, of course, the last phase is that you continue to excel. From there, it's like a rapid growth that happens. And it's incredible. I wonder where you are on the arrow. I wonder what you would say your next step is. To excel in this act of grace. I think if you take a big step back in this passage, you can see a couple of things emerge. Number one is that the giving of your earthly treasures is not a transfer of earthly treasures to heaven, but rather it's a way of saying that earthly treasure doesn't compare even close the things of heaven I think number two is to say that giving and generosity is not a way of simply imitating Jesus but rather it's pointing to the life-changing grace of God that we have through Jesus I think number three and this is where we so often fall down I think in the Christian community today That giving is not fueled by obligation or motivational techniques. (laughs) Giving is fueled by joy. It's fueled by gratitude. Joy in what God has done in your life and gratitude for what he has given. If that's the fuel, generosity happens. Invisible grace is made visible as people start to excel in this way. I want to close this morning by reminding you of the story of William Tyndale. Many of you know his name. William Tyndale was an English minister in the 1500s who translated the Bible into English for the very first time. Until then, the Catholic Mass was conducted uh, in Latin, which was no longer the common language of the people. And They had no form of the Bible in a language they could read. So they couldn't hear sermons in a language they could understand. They couldn't read the scriptures in a language that they could understand. There was a spiritual famine in the land. And there was a desperate need for people to hear about Jesus. William Tyndale came onto the scene shortly after Martin Luther in Germany had translated the Bible into the common tongue of German. The printing press was now in play. Copies of the German Bible or sections of it were starting to spread on the continent of Europe. And Tyndale was bolstered in his confidence to do the same, to get God's word into the hands of the English-speaking world. Many of you have heard of William Tyndale. God used him in incredible ways. God, he is in part of the reason why you can hold a Bible Right here this morning as we talk about it together. You've heard of Tyndale. But I wonder if you've heard of Humphrey Manmouth. Humphrey Manmouth was not a preacher. He was not an evangelist. He was a cloth merchant from East London. And upon hearing Tyndale preach from Romans one night in English he immediately approached him and asked him if he could take him out for a steak and a beer. Sounds like my type of guy. He had never heard anyone preach the Bible so plainly to people. And in English, no less. And upon the learning in the conversation that it was Tyndale's mission not just to preach the Bible plainly, but also to translate it so people could understand it plainly, Manmus sat back and he was wondering what God was doing in the middle of this situation. By the end of the conversation, Humphrey Manmus had offered him patronage. Patronage is a way to say that he would become Tyndale's sponsor. He would invite him to live in his home to eat his food, to pay him a modest wage, all in service of the mission of this kind of translation. And Tyndale did just that. He would be at the house of this cloth merchant who had great expense attached and great risk attached as well. But Humphrey Manmouth had given himself to the Lord, and now he was welling up in generosity. As time went on, Tyndale needed to go to Germany to access Luther's translation. Manmuth and the network of merchants that he knew sent money and supplies to provide for him and promised to connect him with the network that they knew on the continent. Tyndale eventually made his way to Antwerp, Belgium, where he continued his work. And during that same time, Humphrey Manmuth was arrested and thrown into the Tower of London for a year simply for his financial support of this outlaw of the Catholic Church. After his release, he returned to London. And his patronage of William Tyndale continued from a distance. But not only did his patronage continue, he had inspired others in the network as well. And now there were patrons in Europe that were funding the growth of gospel ministry through the preaching and translation of the Bible. In 1536, Tyndale in Antwerp was nearly complete with his translation. He had been resting in the truth of justification by faith alone. When soldiers stormed his residence, he was arrested. And within a few days, he was hung and burned to death. The news reached Humphrey in England. And in the midst of sadness, he rejoiced. His friend had done it. He delighted in the Lord's work. Humphrey Manmouth was a normal guy who got it. He said, I can be something so much bigger than myself. And within a year, he would also die. Their partnership was over. But the English Reformation had just begun. You've heard of William Tyndale. But the growth of the word of God was also fueled and funded by people like Humphrey Manmouth. This is what happens when people grow in generosity. This is what happens when you take a step back and you say, there are things in this world that are infinitely more important than the next vacation (laughs) or the nicer car or the material goods that I want to buy. This is what happens when you say, I want to be part of something bigger than myself. I want to be part of something that lasts long after I'm dead. I want to invest in something of eternal significance. God does incredible things through those types of people. Think about it. Just dream with me for a minute. What would happen if all of us grew in that way? Hundreds upon hundreds of gospel patrons. Think about what happened in the region. Think about, the, think about what would happen by way of the missionaries. Think about the physical and spiritual needs Met for other people. Not to put on hardship as Paul says. But to excel in this act of grace. Invisible grace is made visible this way. <laughs> the invisible grace of God is made visible. When you excel in generosity. So pray with me. Let's pray. Let's think together. What is, what is my next step To move in this direction. Father we need your help. We are compelled by your word. And by examples of the Macedonians. The examples of Christ. The examples of members of our own church family. The examples of people like Humphrey Manmuth. But don't let us rest. In simple Recognition. But rather, by your spirit, continue to grow us in the practical expression. That your kingdom would continue to expand. That we would participate in what you're doing. That we would have joy beyond measure. And that our resources would be held in their proper place, we pray. Amen.